Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, the the title of today's message is Courage Under Fire, because we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 7 where we see Jesus displaying great bravery and courage in the midst of extreme opposition, where he is not only strongly opposed, but he's being verbally attacked. He's heavily criticized. Some people who had already pledged that they would follow him suddenly decide they no longer want to follow him. Even his life is being threatened. So courage under fire. You know, this thing, this concept called cancel culture, is it, to us it might seem like a new thing, but it's not new at all. In fact, if you open your Bibles to passages like John chapter 7, you're going to see that cancel culture has been around a long time. And in fact, we're going to see that the religious authorities, the religious leaders, were rallying many of the people in the first century world in attempts to cancel Jesus. And it really all goes back to John chapter 6. For us to understand John chapter 7, we have to first look at John chapter 6. You might remember in John chapter 6, it's the chapter when Jesus performed that incredible miracle that we know uh, and call the feeding of the 5,000. But remember, it was just 5,000 men that he fed. If you add women and children, it'd be more like the feeding of the 15,000. And so he had performed that extraordinary miracle, and the people absolutely loved it. You know, the saying is true. It says, if you feed them, they'll come. And boy, he fed them, and they were coming. And they loved the food. And they loved the concept of him feeding them. And so after that miracle, what did the people do? They wanted to take him and make him king by force. And Jesus then withdrew from them. Why did he withdraw from them? He withdrew because he knew that their expectations of what type of king he would be were completely off base. It would never be the type of king that he would be. They wanted him to be their their revolutionary leader. They wanted Jesus to help lead them in overthrowing the Romans, who had ruled over them for now almost 100 years. They wanted their freedom back. They wanted their independence back. They wanted to restore their national pride. And to, to go with that, they thought it would be amazing to have someone like Jesus as their king when they regained their independence. And in fact, he could even start a feeding program and feed the people just like God fed the people manna in the wilderness. It would be that type of setting, that type of, of rule. But Jesus was not that type of king at all. So he withdrew from the people. And when he withdrew from the people, guess what happens? At the end of John chapter 6, the people withdrew from him. 
And many of them that had vowed to follow him and called him and their Lord and had believed in him now said, no, we're no longer going to follow Jesus. Well, that was in Galilee. Well, now the setting and the scene is going to move to Judea, the neighboring province and the, the, the most prestigious province. It was where the city of Jerusalem was, the capital city, which was also the holy city, was in Judea. And so the scene is going to move towards Judea because there was another festival that was on the horizon called the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Jewish world, there were three main festivals that all of the committed Jews, the Orthodox Jews, would attend every single year if they lived within a close enough proximity to Jerusalem to go to the festival. And so it was a a very popular one. It was called the Festival of Tabernacles. It was a harvest festival. And this is where in the fall they would celebrate the ingathering of all of the harvest. All of the the ingathering had been done. They had gathered in their grapes, their olives, all of their grains, their wheat, their barley. It was all done. And so this was a a celebration, a festival to celebrate God's gracious provision of their food and all of their physical needs. And so it's really kind of like a Thanksgiving festival for us, our Thanksgiving holidays that comes with its own feast. It's that type of thing. And so we pick up in John chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, let's look on. We'll read the uh, starting with verse 1. It says, after this, meaning after the desertion in Galilee, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, and he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. All right, strong opposition was now in Judea as well as Galilee. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure or who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now Jesus had four brothers. We're told that in scripture. We even know their names. And these brothers were seemingly giving Jesus just some some brotherly advice. The young brothers were just wanting to Help out their big brother. It sounds like what's going on. And so if you want to be a public figure, a religious leader, go to where the the power base is. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the holy city. That's where it needs to happen. That seems like what they're saying. But if you read verse 5, it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And that tells us that their advice was really being given mockingly. And uh, they were ridiculing Jesus for who he was because they did not yet believe. Now, thankfully, we do know later at least two of his brothers come to faith. That's James and Jude. They actually wrote two of the books in the New Testament. But at this point, they did not believe. How hard would that have been for Jesus when he's seeing many of his followers suddenly decide not to follow him anymore. And he's having all of these threats and opposition from the religious leaders. How hard would it be when your own brothers are ridiculing you and mocking you? 
This is the situation Jesus finds himself in. Look how he responds in verse 6. He tells them, his brothers, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now we know from the context and what happens right after this, but even from the wording, it's a little bit of a confusing situation because what's going to happen here is Jesus has just said, I'm not going, and then in the next few verses, he decides to go. And what he's really saying is, I'm not going yet, and I'm not going to go publicly. And there's a reason for that, because it was going to be dangerous for him to go publicly. Look what he says after this. After his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And they were asking, of course, we know, with evil intent in mind. They wanted to harm Jesus. They wanted to at least arrest him, and if they could, they wanted to kill him. We'll see that later in the story. You know, when they traveled to a festival in Jesus' day, they did it corporately. It was a huge celebration, community celebration. They would travel with family and extended family. They would travel with neighbors. There would be a large entourage. Everyone from the same village or collection of villages would travel together. Be a big public event. That's why when we read later uh, in the Gospels that Jesus got left, uh, in one of the Gospels tells us when he was 12 years old, he got left back in Jerusalem after a festival, and it, they traveled a whole day before uh, Mary and Joseph realized he wasn't with them. How could that happen? Well, it happens when you're, you're, you're used to traveling in groups. Perhaps Jesus had been there at the beginning of the journey, and they just assumed he was with the cousins or the neighbors and the friends, and then they realized he wasn't. That's how it was. These large entourages would travel together, and it was very, very festive and celebrative and had to be a whole lot of fun. But Jesus, on this occasion, knew he could not travel with them publicly. He needed to travel privately. Why? Because it was dangerous for him to be in public at this time. Then we get this report from how the crowds were responding in Jerusalem. Verse 12 says, Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So some were saying Jesus is good. Others were saying Jesus is bad. And no one was saying much in front, uh, out loud to uh, so that the religious leaders could hear it. Because especially if you had any sympathies or support for Jesus, they were so very willing and ready to throw Jesus under the bus, and they'd be very willing and ready to throw you under the bus if you sympathize with Jesus in any way. That's the scene. That's the culture that we're being, that's being described here. Well, then we see in verse 14 that halfway through the festival, and it's a seven-day festival, so halfway through the week, Jesus went up to the temple courts and he began to teach. That was his mission, to teach about the kingdom of God and then ultimately to do the redemptive work on the cross. 
all was going to happen in Jerusalem. And so he goes up to teach, and the Jews were there that were there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus, they knew, did not go to one of their Jewish seminaries. There were two big Jewish schools of religious training, the rabbinical school of Hillel and the rabbinical school of Shema. Jesus attended neither one. Nor had Jesus been tutored or mentored by any of the leading rabbis or any of the rabbis at all. In fact, he had not even been trained or taught by the wilderness prophet, John the Baptist. He simply had befriended John the Baptist. So this guy had no formal training, and yet he was amazing the crowds with his teaching and his authority, we know, from other places. They said he taught with great authority. Well, Jesus answers their question. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own so, does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So he says, the reason I'm able to teach this way is my teaching is not from me. It's not me, he says. My teaching is coming from God, my Father. And so he's making a very bold statement and speaking uh, some profound truths. We'll come back to this in just a moment. Then he moves his attention now towards the religious teachers, those who were publicly opposing him, those who were trying to get rid of him, those who were threatening his very life. He turns to them and he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? So the Mosaic law, which is what the religious teachers were all about, particularly the Pharisees, they had dedicated their lives to the Mosaic law. And then he even had made all of these man-made laws that went with each of the laws. One of those laws, of course, the, the Mosaic law is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And we all know one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not commit murder. And yet they were plotting to murder Jesus. Jesus calls them out on this. Why are you trying to kill me? Then they respond by saying, you're demon-possessed. The crowd answered. And that, no doubt, was leaders, religious leaders in the crowd answering, who is trying to kill you? Well, they knew good and well they were trying to kill Jesus. They were plotting his murder. And they were using their, their coming out. They would tell the crowds because they couldn't deny Jesus' power, spiritual power, and they were saying and concluding that the only reason he could do all these miracles is he's getting his power from the dark side, from Satan himself. He's demon-possessed. That's how he's doing these things. And so they tell him, you're demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. What miracle is he talking about? It's the miracle that he had performed when he was last in Judea and last in Jerusalem. And the miracle he's talking about is told to us in John chapter 5 when he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. You might remember the story. The man had been an invalid for 38 years 
probably most of his life, could not walk. Jesus then just proclaims him healed, tells him to pick up his mat and walk. He does so. He rolls up his straw mat, and he's walking, and he goes to the temple courtyards. And guess who the, he sees there? He sees the religious teachers. And they tell him, what, why are you carrying your mat? You're breaking the law of the Sabbath. You're working. One of their man-made rules is you couldn't carry this tiny little straw mat that weighed nothing. You're working. They didn't say, oh, man, what happened? We celebrate your healing. This is incredible. They said, why are you carrying your mat? That's who these guys were. And they were, and then he finally has to tell them it's Jesus who healed him, and then they began to persecute Jesus. And so Jesus is reminding them of that. I did this miracle, and yet you, uh, and then he says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And essentially, he's telling them there is a rule we know that we can circumcise and are called and commanded to circumcise our baby boys on the eighth day. And it doesn't matter if a boy was born on a Friday, the eighth day would be on a Sabbath. And it doesn't matter. You can still circumcise him on the Sabbath. And that's not, and that's okay. And what Jesus is saying, if that's okay, and it should be okay, that's an exception, of course. So should when God mercifully chooses to heal somebody that's had a lifetime of agony and pain and suffering from some kind of physical ailment, that is okay too. That is something that God wants us to understand. He says, stop judging incorrectly is really what he means. And so right here, I think we need to pause and just think for a moment about Jesus' example when facing opposition. I think that's an application. Jesus is giving us an example of how to respond when we face opposition. And we, too, will face opposition. Certainly, it might not be as severe or overt or as dangerous as what Jesus was experiencing. But we, too, can face opposition and often will. How do we respond? Well, if we follow his example, here's just a few thoughts. First of all, I know Jesus remained prayerful throughout the whole occasion. That's not explicitly said in this text, but it's certainly implied. He knew that the time was not right, he says early on. And the reason he knew that is because he was intimately in touch with God the Father. How was he in touch with God the Father? It's because he often withdrew to lonely places to pray, the scriptures tell us. He was a prayer warrior. That's why our church is very committed to being a praying church. That's why we have Pray First and prayer teams and prayer liaisons and why we send out prayer requests and we make prayer a regular part of our worship. It's, it's, it's so vitally important. Jesus remained prayerful. We must too, especially when we're facing opposition. Jesus also used discernment through the Lord. He knew it was dangerous to travel Publicly, so he traveled privately. He used discernment. Another thing we see is that Jesus absolutely stayed on mission. 
He remained on mission. He did not let the opposition keep him from doing what God had called him to do. He did go, he did teach, and he did ultimately go back and do the redemptive work on the cross. He stayed on mission, you and I must too. And then a fourth thing, Jesus was not concerned about his personal glory or reputation. I love what it says uh, in, in the verse uh, 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But he said, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. That's what Jesus was doing. And if you and I remember when we're being personally attacked or opposed in some way is that we can just separate ourselves and say, it doesn't really matter about my reputation or me. I don't need to see the need to defend myself. It's not about my glory. What I need to focus on is making sure God is being glorified by how I'm reacting to this situation and dealing with it. It's about God's glory. And we need to always remember that as we follow our Lord. And then finally, Jesus confronted his opponents directly, speaking the truth to them in love. And we must do the same. I love that Jesus didn't hide from the religious teachers. He went to them and he spoke directly to them. He went toe to toe, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And he told them the truth about what they were doing, and, uh, he, he, and, and then he did it however we know, of course, he did it in love. And that is often what will either cause a bully to stop bullying, they'll back off, or it can bring somebody under conviction, if they need to change, they'll, con they'll change, or there could be a conversation of reconciliation. All good things. So if you and I are being opposed, we have a great example from Jesus of how to deal with opposition. But let's continue here in, in verse 25. Jesus has confronted the Pharisees. Now it says, at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? They knew what the Pharisees were up to, the religious teachers. Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. We again see the people just kind of wavering back and forth in confusion, not really sure if they were to believe in Jesus or not, or if they, uh, they, they said our, our, our leaders seem to be believing it now, but they said they didn't believe earlier. We know where this guy comes from. There was a belief that when the Messiah came, it, he would be mysterious, no one would, he'd just kind of show up. No one would know where he, he came from. But we know this guy. He came from Galilee, from Nazareth. And his base now is on the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out in response. He says, yes, you know me and you know where I come from, but I am not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Again, he's talking about heavenly things. I came from heaven. I came from the one of heaven, the God of heaven. He's the one who sent me. And they knew exactly what he was saying, especially the religious teachers, because look at verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one was able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Certainly he is the Messiah. 
they were saying. When the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. They just knew it was getting out of hand. And they decided we've got to go contain this. We've got to arrest Jesus. The temple guards, by the way, were not Roman guards. These were Levites, people from the priestly tribe of Levi, who had been trained, of course, in security matters. But they were Jewish men who were charged with keeping, uh, keeping the rule and in, in, in following the laws of, and the customs of, of the religious leaders. That's who these people were. And they sent them to try to arrest Jesus. Jesus said to them, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This was very confusing to them. What he's talking about, of course, is soon he would be going back home to the Father after he'd completed his mission and did the redemptive work on the cross and the resurrection he was going to ascend. They didn't know all that. They thought he was talking about going to the Gentile areas, and they speak about that in the next paragraph. What did he mean by by leaving and we won't find him, we can't be with him. And then verse 37, Jesus says something very, very profound. On the last and great, or by the way, before we go there, I think it's very important that we just see in this whole chapter this back and forth between believing and not believing. And that is a huge question that must be asked and answered. And the question is, each person must choose whether he, she, he or she believes in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus or not? A vitally important question that really the whole Gospel of John is written uh, uh, to, for us to, to make that decision. At the end of the Gospel, we've, we've talked about it, it says that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. That's what it really all comes down to, and that's an ultimate question each person has to answer for himself. Do you believe in Jesus or not? And some of them said, yes, we believe. He's a good man. Others said he's a bad man. We don't believe. He's a deceiver. Some said, but listen to the authority and how he teaches. And others said, man, see the miracles. And, and then others said, no, he's demon-possessed. That's how he's getting his power. That's how he's doing the miracles. All of this back and forth. You've got to decide, and your answer is critical to your future. And this is really a, a reward that Jesus is going to talk about for our, for our choice to believe in him. Verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, then rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, meaning completed the redemptive work and been resurrected and ascended, not glorified yet. But the Spirit was coming. And the promise was when the Spirit comes, you will receive living water that will flow from within you. Now, what's the deal with this? Well, what we know about is at the Feast of Tabernacles, 
they would have this celebration of God's provision, in particular during the time of the wilderness wandering. You might remember the story of the Exodus when they made it all the way to the promised land and they were ready to go in and take the promised land and the people then out of fear for the giants, they said, who were living there decided, no, we can't do this. And so then God has to judge his people by causing that entire generation to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that faithless generation died off, and then he would take their children into the promised land. While they were in the wilderness, God continued to provide food for them through manna, and then water would come often miraculously. Remember the story where Moses hits the rock and the water gushes out? That happened during this time. And so the people never forgot that even in their forefathers' rebellion, God provided abundantly. He provided food and he provided, most importantly, water. Life-sustaining, life-giving water in the desert. So during the Feast of, of Tabernacles, every day there would be kind of a parade, a pro processional from the temple led by the priests down to the Pool of Siloam, they would take this golden container and they would scoop up water and then they would parade back to the temple. When they got to the temple courtyards, there would be three trumpet blasts and then a Levitical choir would begin lead the people in singing hymns as the priest poured the water out over the altar. And so on the last day, they would do that same thing, but they would do it seven times, not just once a day, seven times to culminate. God is our great provider. God is the one who sustains us, quenches our thirst, provides water for us. So Jesus then replies, if you're thirsty, come to me, believe in me, and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, then rivers of living water will flow from within you. What a beautiful metaphorical uh, sense of, of God's grace, of God's provision for, soul par or for, for uh, parched souls. He will quench your thirst. He will bring you the greatest fulfillment life can have. And most of all, he's going to give you the spirit. That's how that life-sustaining Living water is in you and flows through you. I believe the greatest miracle in all the Bible is that God gives his Holy Spirit and places his Holy Spirit not just with us, but within us when we become believers. That is the greatest miracle because through the Spirit, we have this intimate connection with God. We have the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ. We can become the hands and the feet of Christ. And we experience the joy and the life that comes from Christ. And Jesus is making that promise. And that's really one of the things I want us to note here is that those who believe in Jesus will be greatly rewarded with this promise. But there is a price to pay. Those who choose to follow Jesus will pay a price for their choice. Make no mistake about it. The very last part of this, we kind of see some interesting things. It says, verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees and asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Why didn't you arrest Jesus is what they're asking. Look what they, what they responded, verse 46. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? 
have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, this, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. And then listen to this, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. You see, these are two, uh, what we're being told about are, are some unsung heroes in the story. Who are the unsung heroes in this story? Temple guards who refused to turn Jesus in. And Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a very prominent Pharisee. Later we find out a very wealthy Pharisee who was committed to bearing Jesus and he bought 75 pounds of, um, of myrrh and aloes and oil for Jesus. An exorbitant amount to show his respect for Jesus. You see, what I believe is unwritten here but would have happened, I believe every single one of those guards at the very least lost his job. And it may have been worse. I believe, and we have a little bit of extra biblical evidence, that Nicodemus lost his prestigious position because of his sympathies for Jesus and his belief in Jesus. And we're even told in one of those sources that he lost his wealth. Question for us is, is it worth it to believe in Jesus? For you, are you willing to pay whatever price that God asked you to pay? These unsung heroes paid a price for believing in Jesus. And let me just say today, it is worth it. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.